American National is proud to support No Ceiling, the stories of women and their journey to the C-suite. American National is dedicated to providing paths for leadership advancement through the Women's Forum, a group of female leaders who provide encouragement, mentorship, and advocacy for American National female employees. With four corporate locations in Galveston and League City, Texas, Albany, New York, and Springfield, Missouri, the opportunities for leadership advancement are vast. American National believes taking care of business starts with taking care of its employees. I felt this strong sense of prophetic love that said, I love the potential of the church. I'm heartbroken at the reality of the church in so many expressions today. So like, I'm willing to invest in trying to do church differently and trying to show that it could be different. It doesn't have to be what we know it to be today. Today's guest is Christy Love. She leads The Connecting Grounds, a church with a mission to clothe, feed, and care for those in need with compassion. Christy admits that she was an unlikely candidate for full-time ministry. She grew up in the church, but struggles in adulthood caused her to wrestle with her faith. She says it was in studying theology that she saw the potential the church had to reach out to the least of these and build meaningful relationships. Her church, TCG, is known for advocating for the city's unhoused population. In this episode, we discuss Christy's faith journey and her vision for the modern church. From SBJ Podcasts, I'm Christine Temple, and this is No Ceiling, a show that goes in-depth with local women, sharing their journey to the top of their professions and the challenges and triumphs they faced along the way. They're rewriting the script on success, and there's no ceiling. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with um, a book that you published in 2021, God of the Gaps. Uh, The dedication is to um, anyone who has struggled or questioned or wrestled with their faith. And I just wonder if you could start here by telling us what what inspired this book from your Mm -hmm. life. Mm. Yeah, so for me, growing up in this area that we often call the buckle of the Bible belt, um, you know, I grew up as kind of the quintessential church kid. And so I was always in some kind of a faith space. I often say like my life and my early childhood was shaped under stained glass and steeple. And um, I was always in a big church with lots of things to do. Um But I think one of the things that happened for me is I grew up with a lot of privilege, and I recognize that now in hindsight. Um, I grew up with a lot of layers of privilege um, in in the, the context of my upbringing. I didn't necessarily experience struggle. Um, until I was older. And when those struggles started to come, one of the first things that I really began to wrestle with was the authenticity of my faith. And I realized that my faith at the time was very much a carbon copy of everyone else around me. It was what I had been taught. It was what was expected of me. It was what I heard modeled around me, but it wasn't necessarily what I had wrestled with and therefore clung to. And so um, for me, there was a long season that I call the gap of kind of being in this in-between place of, you know, where there was a problem and a solution that took a long, long time and in some ways still isn't there, um, 
where inside of that gap, I had to struggle and I had to wrestle and I had to ask hard questions. And I had to ask hard questions like, why do I think this is true? Or why does this not line up? And so I think for people who have had the courage to ask those questions in hard spaces, um, there is something born in that place in us. And that was, that was who I was writing to when I wrote that book. So the work that you do every day is working with people who struggle in, in so many mm-hmm. different ways. Um, but I just imagine that the empathy that you have developed for them that has to come from that struggle that you talk about. Will you, will you tell us what was the thing that happened in adulthood that really caused you to question and, and wrestle with that faith that was such a big part of your upbringing? Yeah, I mean... You know, there there were numerous gaps. You know, I think for all of us, we don't just go through one struggle, right? Struggles are often layered. Um, they often intersect with one another. Um, so for, for my family, um, you know, there was a broken marriage, my first marriage. Um, and that was definitely a struggle of being thr- thrust, you know, unexpectedly into single motherhood um, and trying to raise kiddos, which, you know, came with economic hardships, which came with their own gaps and trying to figure out how to navigate those challenges. Um, and then there came some custody battles, which were messy and hard. And a lot of people have had to walk through those and they very seldom go smoothly and easily. Um, and ours most definitely did not. Um, and that led to a lot of other gaps. Um, you know, we struggled. I remarried, um, and my husband was in construction and was in construction in 2008 when the market kind of crashed. And so anybody that was in that trade at that time, you know, experienced some gaps financially and, and economically. And that was definitely us. You know, we ended up losing our house. Um, we, he lost his business for a season. And so we experienced a degree of homelessness in that time where we were very blessed that we had family who immediately said, just come stay with us while you catch your breath and, you know, figure out the next thing. And we were only there for a matter of weeks. Um, But the truth of the matter is in the work that I do every day, I encounter people who maybe don't have that kind of support system for one reason or another, or maybe this is not the first time they've experienced that kind of gap and that kind of struggle. And so that support system maybe was there early on, but has been kind of tapped out as they've gone further and further into some of these struggles. And so it just becomes harder and harder. And so there's definitely empathy um, from my own experience of knowing what it's like to have the bottom fall out when you don't expect it to, when systems let you down, when you don't expect them to, and you think that you can trust them to do the right thing, and they don't always do that. Um, And so there's a lot of those pieces that I pull from every day in the work that we do at TCG. Mm -hmm. So when you wrestled with your faith during that time, like what are the things that like rose to the surface and Mm -hmm. remained within your faith? Yeah. Mm, Great question. So I think one of the things that that really rose to the surface for me was so much of the faith that I had grown up with was about being in the right places, performing the right actions. It was kind of like this holy checklist, right? Like, hey, go to church, check, tithe, check, you know, be involved in Sunday school, check, you know, do all of these things, be a good person, do your quiet time, check, 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 check. And I started to realize that at the end of the day and where the rubber met the road and where the bottom fell out and the gap finally existed, a checklist wasn't going to keep me afloat. And a checklist was nothing more than religion and just, you know, the motions. And what I needed 
was connection. And what I needed was relationship, not only a relationship for me personally with my creator with the divine, but also relationship with other people that wasn't based upon my performance, but was based upon who I was, what I was capable of doing. Um, and so I think that was a big piece for me because so much of our modern day church is built upon that checklist. And what are you doing? What can you do? And so being challenged to really shift that to something that's much more organic um, for me, I think allowed me to find something that was a stronger foundation to build on. Mm-hmm. So when did you know that you wanted to go into ministry? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I went kicking and screaming into ministry. I mean, if I'm honest. Um, So I was was a business owner. I had started a company that was like my dream company. Um, And so it was a professional organizing company. I, like when I get really stressed out, give me a messy closet and some really loud music and I'm a happy girl. Like that is how I'm going to work through my stuff. Um, It's just to organize and feel like I can get control over things. When I'm really stressed out, sometimes I get a latte and just walk through like the container store or staples. Um, So I was running a professional organizing company and I was, you know, helping executives and office um, owners and all kinds of different things like that. I was doing time management coaching and consulting with entrepreneurs and just, I loved it. Um, And I felt like I was really in my sweet spot. And it was in the middle of that season of just a lot of struggle for me. And it was in that season where I felt like um, I just had a moment where I was really challenged. And, um, you know, I just really kind of felt like I felt this prompting, just this holy prompting of like, you need to be doing more. There's more people like you out there who are asking these questions, who are struggling with these things, who are realizing that the checklist isn't what it's all about. Um, and, and your voice is needed. Your story is needed. Your experience is needed. Um, your presence is needed. You need to create some new tables for people to start to wrestle with these things. And um, man, I was not happy. I I loved what I was doing. And so, um, but it was a big, it was a big leap of faith to quit that, lay down employment, lay down some degree of security. Um, And so that first step for me was creating Lead Her, which was an international women's organization. Um, When we first created it, it had no no concept it was going to be international. I really thought we were just building something for Southwest Missouri um, and it kind of got away from us. And so, But yeah, it's just kind of been one step at a time. So you have this international organization, but now your focus is so squarely on our community, very local. So what was that journey like from going international to realizing, wow, there's something in my backyard that I need to address? Absolutely. So so Lead Her was focused on um, leadership development with women around the globe. We worked with women in eight or nine different countries, kind of depending upon the season. We were in our eighth year of ministry, and I was doing a training for um, pastors and church leaders in the Dominican Republic. And I'm sitting on this beach, right, which is beautiful, and I'm surrounded by this resort that we were staying at that was beautiful, and I was at a church that was beautiful, but when I looked around, I just, I, I was so burdened by the poverty that was all around this beauty. And I just was like, man, you know, ah, and, you know, really was kind of wrestling with that. And I was sitting there one morning and I was like, you know, I feel like I want to do something about this and, you know, kind of praying and just pondering and meditating on some different things. And I, again, just felt like this weight on my spirit that was like, this is what your city looks like too. And that hit me so incredibly hard. Because again, sometimes I think our privilege 
gives us blind spots that we just don't see. And it's not always that we're intentionally trying to ignore problems. Sometimes I think it's that we're genuinely not always exposed to them or that maybe we're just not looking for them. Our own preconceptions or stereotypes maybe block the reality of situations. And so um, I flew home from that trip really, really challenged to just start exploring our city more and understand the poverty. And so, you know, I remember on the airplane just, you know, doing some some research and looking and, you know, man, how did I not know that our poverty rate was twice the state's average? How did I not know, you know, that some of these things existed? And so it was just this really, really eye-opening um, season for me. I came back and uh, was on staff at a little church and probably six months into this journey, I said, I think we need to plant a church, and I think we need to be doing something about the poverty issues in our city and trying to raise awareness for this. And um, that wasn't something they felt called to do, and it was something I didn't feel like I could ignore. And so I eventually stepped away from that church and spent three years really focused on studying Springfield before we launched the Connecting Grounds. So uh, what was the denomination that you were involved in? initially at that small church and, and kind of where did you, what was your journey to your denomination now? Because I, I know a little bit from your background that it's very different. Yeah. It's very different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up Southern Baptist, um, you know, kind of the height of conservatism in a lot of spaces. Um, but I always kind of say I was definitely a, a square peg in a round hole, um, in, in that, that sandbox. Um, I've always had probably a much more progressive view on a lot of different things, especially women in ministry. Um, And so there were always times that I felt like I was kind of pushing the envelope. And so, yeah, that conversation when I said, I think we should... We should do more. We should raise awareness. Let's plant a church downtown. Let's do some outreach-focused kind of things. Um, The response that I got was actually um, really, really heartbreaking and really sad, and I think it speaks to what a lot of women in faith spaces that are really highly fundamental and conservative often experience, where I was told, you have all the right gifts and all the wrong genetics. You can't plant a church. And um, I had to wrestle with that for about 0.2 nanoseconds before I realized you don't get to put limits on that. I feel like if, you know, for me personally, in, in my faith context, I feel like if God's calling me to do something, then I need to trust that, not what somebody else is saying is right or wrong. And so, um, yeah, I, I resigned and just spent some time really, really kind of exploring what I really felt was the truth about women in ministry and women in the church. And the more that I explored, the more that I realized, man, there's a lot of questions that nobody wants to talk about. You know, I remember I asked this particular individual to go to lunch with me and he looked at me and he said, I'm not saying you're wrong. In fact, you may even be right about the theology. Um, but the problem is you're just not a hill that I'm willing to die on. Because if I push this issue of women in the church, we're going to lose tithers and we're going to lose people. And, you know, for me, when I look at church attendance across the United States over the last few decades, right, and we see these numbers rapidly declining and you have this outcry from, you know, religious individuals who say, you know, what's happening? Why are all these people leaving the church? And then you really start to look at the numbers. The two largest groups that are leaving the church are young adults and women. And women are leaving in record numbers. Um, 
Because I think there's a frustration that says, if you're going to silence me and sideline me and not use my gifts, my talents, and my willingness, I'm going to find a way to make a difference in a different space. I'm just imagining you getting that response back and, again, not losing your faith Mm -hmm. and and digging in deeper to it and asking the questions. Like, what Mm -hmm. about you makes that strength such a part of who you are and that, that perseverance? Yeah, so I'm a hardcore Enneagram one. And so if you're familiar with the Enneagram, you know, the the one is kind of the, the personality type that is all about like righteous justice and, you know, all about setting broken things right and trying to fix the world. And, um, you know, there's just this constant voice that's, you know, always kind of nagging in my spirit. You know, the Enneagram calls it the inner critic and um, I call it really frustrating. <laughs> but, you know, it just it never turns off. And it's just always this. What else could we be doing? How could we do better? What could we you know? And so for me, I've had to learn to embrace that tendency and okay, if I don't know the answer, then I'm going to find it and let's dig into it and let's research it. And so there was definitely some some concern and some fear for me because that's a huge piece, right, that you're walking away from that I've been taught that I'm not capable. I've been taught that I'm not allowed. But the more and the more that I dug in, so one of the things that I did was like, okay, well, let's go get my master's degree and let's do, you know, three years of theology and let's study this specific issue and really make sure that like I felt comfortable stepping into these spaces. And so, um, you know, I don't jump into things without just really making sure that we research and we look at things. Um, and I, I feel like that's something that I've always tried to wrestle with and to, mm-hmm. to do. So as you're doing this research, and you're thinking about, you know, the connecting grounds before mm-hmm. it became the connecting grounds that we know today. Like, what were the truths about God and about what you felt like the church was called to do that mm. were the basis of that that plan? Yeah. So, again, very Enneagram one of me, right? Like, there was a lot of frustration, to be honest. Um, you know, even though I'd grown up in the church, like, I was just, I was heartbroken by so much of what I saw the church as and becoming and settling for in our country and especially in our area. Like, I think one of the things that is one of my greatest frustrations personally is just like wasted potential. Like anytime that I see someone, you know, like in my day-to-day work, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, I see so much potential in you. Like I want to help unleash that potential. Um, And I call that, you know, kind of my Christy terminology for that is prophetic love. Like I love the potential that's in you, but I'm also willing to love that potential out of you. And that was very much the energy behind TCG was like, um, when I looked at the church and I looked at what we call the church today versus what I felt like the church was called to be when we look at scripture, when we look at, you know, these places of community and, and radically challenging, you know, systems and structures and, and instruments of justice and mercy and grace and compassion. And I see this disconnect or this gap, if you will, between what it could be and what it should be. I felt this strong sense of prophetic love that said, I love the potential of the church. I'm heartbroken at the reality of the church in so many expressions today. So like I'm willing to invest in trying to do church differently and trying to show that it could be different. It doesn't have to be what we know it to be today. So when you were envisioning the Connecting Grounds, did you think that it was going to be a a congregation that 
serve the unhoused population in our community? Was that your goal? So I, I think my goal to begin with was to find and to fill gaps. And I think one of the problems that I see for a lot of us today, right, whether that's church planters, whether that is business owners, whether that is executives, whatever that looks like, sometimes I think we go in so focused on what our plan is and our five-year vision, and we get tunnel vision that says, if it doesn't fall in the scope of this, then it's not ours to do. And sometimes I think we do that so much so that we get locked in and we end up missing so many opportunities because we don't have the contextual perspective. We don't have the flexibility. We don't keep a, a much larger holistic view of things that says, okay, I started here, but I see this over here and nobody's attending to that. So maybe we need to make an adjustment. Maybe we need to do this. Maybe we need to do that. And so I think for me, I see so many times that great things get started with great potential, but we hold on to them with such a tight fist, or we, we have such a narrow view that we don't adapt. And when we don't adapt, I think things oftentimes miss what, what could be. And so for TCG, we kind of started with this very broad, I'm not going to put a tunnel on it. We want to find and fill the gaps. Where are they? Let's listen. Let's look. Let's see. And it led us into some places that we didn't necessarily know we were going to be going down. But as we started to explore them, it was like, okay, what can we do with this? How could we how could we create a program that could address that? That makes sense. Let's do that. Okay, then we see this one. Oh, I see a, I see a connection here. Let's talk about that. Nobody's actually connecting these two things in our community. Let's let's have a conversation about homelessness and about foster care. And oh wow, there seems to really be a need for a no barrier food pantry, which makes sense with all of these communities that we're starting to serve. And so each of these pieces just kind of got added as you're holistically still paying attention to the city. What was like your introduction to poverty in our city or mm. homelessness or um, challenges with the foster care system? Because I don't hear in your background that you've, you know, have uh, education in, in these areas mm -hmm. or um, work experience, but you have some life experience mm -hmm. that you brought to it. But yeah. like, what was that like experiencing these things in our city and yeah. learning about them? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So definitely personal experience. You know, I, I I struggled as a single mom. You know, we lived just barely kind of that cliff effect, you know, just above being able to qualify for childcare subsidies or being able to qualify for food stamps. And so like, what does this look like? Or, you know, being able to qualify for WIC and kids that were on Medicaid. And like, so I, I had that experience of trying to deal with system personally and finding how frustrating it was. Um, you know, we had that experience personally of, you know, living paycheck to paycheck and just trying to do the best that you can. Um, and then having the bottom fall out when you didn't expect it to. And so I think that experience was, was the most important component, right? Because having that allowed me to enter into spaces with people who would say, you don't know what it's like. And I would say, actually, I do. And as we would start to talk and share our stories, they would realize I did understand. And my, my circumstances may not have been identical, but there was enough of a connection there that they could kind of let down some of their walls. And, and for me, some of the most 
incredible teachers that I've learned from are people who live in this city and have struggled in this city for most of their lives. And so, you know, as I got to listen to stories and I got to understand things, I would say, you know, I've never heard of that. Let me research that. Let's look at that. And so, you know, would start to dig into it. And then I would start to say, man, there's really something here. And I, you know, I think I'll do my master's project on this and we'll look at this. And, um, you know, and so now even working on my doctoral degree with kind of that, that focus of trauma and poverty and homelessness and the church and what does that look like? Um, it's definitely become emerging for me of lived experience, listening, academic, you know, a lot of different research pieces. Mm-hmm. What have you learned though about, about individuals who are part of this chronically homeless population? Um, because these are, these are people with stories. They've had mm-hmm. successes mm-hmm. along with challenges. Um, but they're so often defined by this one factor about mm-hmm. them. Um, so, you know, working so closely with this community, what have you learned about, about them? Yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, everybody has had successes. But I think one of the, the things that is really difficult for people who are living at or below the poverty line, especially in our community, is we tend to define success across the board, right? So you're successful when, fill in the blank. You know, you're successful when you graduate college. You're successful when you have a car that's your own. You're successful when you own your own home. You're successful when you, you know, whatever that is. Um, And because we focus on so many of these big things, I think a lot of times we fail to celebrate and to encourage some of the really important little things. You know, you are successful when you're sober for 30 days. You're successful when you get help for mental health. You are successful when you leave a domestic violence situation. You are successful when you stand up and you say, this is my story and I think I need to tell it because somebody else may be impacted as well. And so... um, I think one of the things that ends up happening is because we're not acknowledging those things, we end up with a very large portion of our population that frankly is just really tired, you know, and and exhausted, um, exhausted from being misunderstood, exhausted from trying to fit into systems and structures that were oftentimes built by people without lived experience. And so there's all of these disconnects. There's all of these gaps. There's a lot of great organizations in Springfield, um, but we've really got to learn to work together better because there's a lot of duplication. There's a lot of, you know, overlap where instead of filling all of these gaps. Sometimes we've got, you know, four organizations doing this, but they're not collaborating together. And so how do we, how do we create a better system that works better, not just as trying to get bigger? When we come back, Christy and I talk about her advocacy for the city's unhoused population and how she sees the mission of Jesus playing out at the Connecting Grounds. Support for this podcast is provided by American National Insurance. We'll be right back. Springfield Business Journal has been the business authority for over 40 years. SBJ strives to provide the most relevant, timely, and accurate business news you need to make important decisions. Locally owned and operated, Springfield Business Journal helps businesses market themselves to other businesses. Since 75% of the readers are the owner, GM, or VP at the business, SBJ helps your business influence decision makers when it matters most. If you need to raise your profile when businesses are considering your category of service, make sure you are differentiating yourself by using the Springfield Business Journal. You've become a voice and an advocate 
in, in many spaces for um, the populations, the unhoused populations in our community. Um, what has that taught you about about yourself and what you're capable of? And has it confirmed in you what you thought the gospel was? Mm. I think one of the things that has been interesting to watch is like all of these pieces for me in my life, right? Like organizing and having that gifting and, you know, other hats that I wore along the way or, you know, other times that I thought maybe I'll go into law school one day and then, you know, change my major or like this or that, like all of these different weird pieces of my journey and like watching all of the places that those all come into play now, like all the pieces that seem so disconnected for so long um, are like, oh, I see now why, you know, maybe I, I have that kind of a brain or why those things were of interest to me and why, you know, those things make more sense. Um, so I, I feel like I see those pieces come together. I don't know necessarily if I would say that I've learned something about myself as much as I would say I think that what I have learned is just the power of people stepping up, right? Like all of us have a voice. All of us have an ability to volunteer and to get involved and to listen to stories and to get to know somebody. And it is statistically one person at a time that makes the difference. You know, we know from from trauma research that the number one way to mitigate the impact of trauma in somebody's life is for you to have one positive person in your corner. And so every single one of us have the ability to be one positive person for somebody. You know, whether that's an unhoused individual, whether that's someone struggling with addiction, someone that's been released from incarceration, you know, a youth that's aging out of foster care, a kid that's in foster care and struggling, whatever that looks like. Um, And so for me, I know that I have, you know, this logistical brain that can, you know, create systems and structures, and then just to be able to invite people into those systems and structures that say, we've created space for you to help make a difference and to love out loud and, and to do positive work in this community. I'm just grateful that people show up and say yes time after time after time again. What does, um, you know, success look like for you within the connecting grounds? And how do you measure, like, what does moving the needle look like? Mm. Or do you have a different goal? Mm, That's a great question. So, you know, I think there's a macro and a micro level to that, right? So on one side, I have to define success every single day or else I will burn out. Um, and, and our whole team, you know, we do that. We have to find the things to celebrate daily because some days are just harder than others, right? You know, we have days where it, it's heartbreaking to watch somebody relapse. It's heartbreaking to watch someone that had gotten into housing get evicted again. It's heartbreaking to see some of those just continued cycles, um, you know, just wreak havoc on people's lives that you love. Um, and so, there are days that you have to search harder for the success and to celebrate those. Um, but that's a practice that I have to do um, in order to keep pushing forward every day. And so sometimes success looks like, you know, I saw this person do this today and that was a success and and that was huge. So I, a lot of times I measure that level of success in just people's individual stories, their individual progress and being privileged to celebrate that with them. But at the same time, Um, 
I think when there are more of those individual successes, right, that's when it starts to add up to systemic change. And there are definitely some barriers to systemic change in our city and in our state and in our country. And so, you know, advocating for those things, trying to raise awareness for things that need to change, that need to be addressed for conversations that need to be had um, inside the faith community, inside our government, inside, you know, pockets of law enforcement and, and other government officials. And what does that look like? How do we work together better? Um, how do we get this poverty rate down in Springfield? How do we, you know, get rid of a designation that came out recently as Springfield being the poorest city in the state? You know, how do we change the difficulties with transportation? How do we overcome barriers for people to get addiction and substance abuse and mental health help in Springfield? You know, there are so many layers of this issue um, that, it's one that I'm committed to for the long haul because it's not something that's going to be fixed overnight. But I think if we continue to talk about it, we continue to invite people to be part of the solution. Um, I think that's one of the things I celebrate too, is how much more we're talking about poverty and homelessness than we were three years ago. Hmm. How do you feel like your voice has been accepted as one of one of the many voices that are in this conversation in our city? Well, I know my voice isn't always liked, and it's not always popular. And um, from a leadership perspective, I had to learn to be okay with that. Um, I think way too many of us in leadership, um, we seek being popular and being accepted over being what's right and doing what's just. Um, so I had to get really comfortable with being unliked, and I had to get really comfortable with um, you know people pushing back from me and um, – that was a hard season, and that season went on for quite a while, um, and it still goes on, you know, in certain places. But I think my willingness to be unpopular in places of power and privilege um, definitely allowed me to earn some trust with individuals in this city who do have that degree of lived experience, the people that we're genuinely working every day to try to help and to make Springfield better for. Um, I think there was an understanding that we were willing to, you know, lose our church location. We were willing to face ridicule and a lot of hate mail and, you know, a lot of other things to stand up for the fact that the way people were treated in this city for a long, long time just wasn't okay. And because of that, you know, there is now what we call in, in our world, we kind of joke is called transfer trust, right? So like, especially as we have so many new people on the street or, you know, an organization that may come about, if somebody says, you know, hey, I, I know them, you can trust them, then people are going to come and we have this chance to say, here's what we need to do, you know, and that has allowed us to have conversations that, again, weren't happening you know, years ago, not just in, in places of power and privilege where decisions are being made, but also in those lived experience circles, you know, conversations about, I understand that you're frustrated maybe with law enforcement or this, but if we're constantly fighting against this system, then we're not necessarily making progress because we're using all of our energy. So instead, like, how do we, how do we you know, deal with some of those issues? How do we become more respectful? How do we partner together better with businesses and, and law enforcement in our city? And there's, there's some lateral leadership that is developing that really makes me excited. Hmm. Uh, something that I was thinking about recently, because you post on social media 
a lot just kind of giving updates Mm -hmm. when there are um, different challenges that you're looking for solutions toward or when you've found these great solutions and you want to share these wins. Um, But I just had this sense like my view of like our city and even waking up is very different than your view. Mm -hmm. Um, I woke up the other day to snow and was like really jazzed about it and was excited about how beautiful it was. Um, That's not your experience Mm -hmm. when you wake up and but because you've shared your experience now, like that's a perspective that I can have too. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that routine like for mm-hmm. you? Because, you know, this is your job, but it's kind of also, your, you know, your life's calling. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that look like every morning for you to feel like I got to, I got to check on everyone. I yep. got to make sure everyone's okay. And yeah. then what's that process from there? to make those things happen. Yeah. 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 Snow is not enjoyable anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I used to, I used to say thunderstorms were my favorite weather and I, I can't enjoy them anymore. And, um, you know, I can enjoy like the sound of thunderstorms when I listen to it, when I go to sleep at night on my, you know, my phone app or whatever. Um, but so many of those things are impacted when we start to realize, you know, I saw somebody post a quote on Facebook today that said something about, you know, your privilege changes perspective when you realize how many people are suffering around you that you you hadn't realized before. Um, and that's exactly it. You know, when, when snow hits for me um, and when the really cold weather moves in for us, you know, I wake up in the morning, my first immediate thought is, okay, it's been wet for 12 hours. How many people are going to have trench fit? Are we running out of Listerine? Do I need to go and buy more stuff at, you know, so that we can soak more feet and kill the fungus and get clean socks on everybody? And, you know, how many blankets are we going to need to launder? Do we have enough that are dry that we can swap people out so that they can leave their wet blankets and take a dry blanket? And, you know, what does that look like? And, you know, do we have enough hot hands that are put together? And, you know, constantly just trying to think some of those things through, um, you know, and then the opposite is true too. You know, it's not just cold weather. Um, you know, hot weather is just as dangerous, you know? So in the summer I'm constantly watching. It's like, okay, it's 95 degrees. Does everybody have Gatorade? Do we need to get cooling towels out? Let's get the popsicles into the freezer. And, you know, you're starting to prepare for those things. And so, um, I, it definitely changes the way that you look at things. Um, you know, today, as you and I sit here, it's December and it is 65 degrees outside yeah. and it's beautiful. You know, these are the rare days that I feel like I can take a deep breath and go, everybody's going to be okay today. Everybody's going to be okay tonight. And that, that recharges my batteries. So, mm-hmm. um, but with this cold weather that we had around Christmas, mm-hmm. um, you helped stand up a number of shelters that mm-hmm. hadn't existed before. Um, and you talk about that trust, um, in the community, like what, what are those conversations sound like to mm-hmm. say, can you open up your building to people you've never met before? Mm-hmm. And and trust me, someone you, you maybe didn't, hasn't mm-hmm. met before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, most of the people who we asked that of were very good friends who I've built a relationship with. Um, and so it's for some of them sounded more like not asking, but saying, I need your building, yeah. you know, like, um, do you have anything scheduled? I'll bring you supplies. I'll get you volunteers. I'll organize the meals. I literally just need access to your building. I'll clean it afterwards. You just tell me what I need to do. Um, and you know, we asked, um, eight churches, seven of which said yes. And that was enormous, um, in those first couple of hours. Now, as we kind of started to get further out, 
you know, we started to realize we're going to need a really big church, you know, because when, when the expo center came online, that was, that was later um, in that week as we started to prepare, that became my biggest fear was what happens if 300 people show up at the expo center? And what if they all need to go to shelter that night? Because we only had the expo center from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And so I thought we're going to need a big church that can serve as overflow just in case, you know, because one of the things that I think we hear a lot in the city are, well, people don't want help. Right. People aren't coming in. They're not going to shelter. Well, I would disagree with that. You know, most nights, especially for the last couple of years, our shelter beds have been full every night. And anytime we open up extra beds as overflow when it gets really cold. They are also full. And so it's not an issue of people not coming in. It is an issue of them knowing that. It takes a lot of energy and effort to pack up everything you own and walk across the city to get to the place, to get to transportation, to get there and only be told that you're not going to get a spot. So if they know that there's extra spaces opening for them, people show up for those extra spaces because they want to get out of the weather. And so, again, we saw that this past week. And, um, you know, so we made many requests of large churches in town, um, and most of them declined. And um, we had one church that said, yeah, we can do that. And that was the venues out on East Battlefield, opened their large location for a couple of nights. And so, um, you know, those, again, those conversations come in building relationship and in asking and challenging people, especially over the Christmas season. I don't think there's a better way to celebrate than practicing radical hospitality. Is it every church's responsibility to serve the unhoused community? I think when we look at scripture, scripture is pretty clear for us, right? That what you did to the least of these, you did to me. And I think we can argue and quabble and, you know, kind of split hairs over who are the least of these. But I think when we look at the ministry of Jesus, he modeled for us the people he invited to his table. And those were oftentimes people that were low income, people that were in poverty, people that were on the margins of society, people that, you know, typical society and privileged society may have looked at as, you know, less than for some reason. And those were the people that Jesus was often saying, come to me. And for whatever reason, most of the time, the American church is saying, those are the last people that we want in this space. And I think we need to do some serious soul searching when it comes to faith spaces, because I think we've inverted the gospel in a really backwards kind of way um, that's really disturbing in a lot of spaces. Are these the types of things that are the areas that make you question your faith today? And They don't make me question no. my faith mm-hmm. They make me incredibly frustrated with the way that we have interpreted scripture and the way that we have built systems of power um, that have become more like a business than they have become communities that are authentic and transparent and sharing life together and helping people through hard times. Um, and that's that's frustrating because I don't think that's a real reflection of what we're called to do and what we're called to be. And I know that that's not a popular thing to challenge because um, – I, I hear from more frustrated pastors with me than I hear from most other people. Um, and it's frustration because as we start asking those questions and challenging people, you know, they may ignore those conversations or not want to participate in them, but it's stirring up those conversations in the pews. And so when they start to be asked inside their house and their churches, um, I know that that gets uncomfortable, but we can't keep avoiding those questions. We can't keep saying that we are the buckle on the Bible belt and ignoring the fact that if that's really the case and we're walking out the gospel, 
why do we have a poverty rate that per capita is higher than any other city in the state? Because if we were answering the call of scripture, I don't know that that would be the case. And I'm not saying that everything falls on the church. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that I think we have, we have a disconnect in this city that we need to wrestle with and we need to talk about. Hmm. Is there a, a difference between a church and faith? And has that been absolutely that's helped you? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and like I said before, it's the difference for me between like religion and relationship, right? You know, I think faith is something that's personal and something that's intimate. And it's something that has become true to me because I've wrestled with it and I've I've had to make it my own so that I can, you know, I can grab a hold of it. It's tangible to me. I think church for so many of us, myself included, for a long time in my life, church was what I thought was faith. Until I realized that that wasn't the case at all. You know, church really, in the way that we do it so often, is buildings and programs and budgets and performances and, you know, amazing laser lights and fog machines. And, you know, yes, there's small groups and yes, there's relationship in that too. But Again, I think we struggle so often to go really deep and really relational in our culture. And I, there's a lot of components to that um, that I just I, I don't know that we're always getting to the heart of what that looks like to do life together, you know, to bear one another's burdens, to come beside people when they're struggling um, and to walk out some of those spaces. You mentioned you're uh, pursuing your doctorate degree. Mm-hmm on uh, trauma and, and that connection with mm-hmm. religion. Um, what was that experience like in, in your life where mm-hmm. you had trauma from religion and, and kind of what's your hope with that yeah. education? Yeah, I mean, I tell people all the time, I am the least likely person um, to still be engaged in the church, right? Like I had a lot of different spaces where I, I stepped forward and say and would say, you know, hey, I want to be more involved in this. And I'd be told, sorry, you're divorced. You're not allowed to do that. Or, hey, I really feel like I want to use my gifts and help with that. Sorry, you're a girl. You can't do that. You know, hey, I really would like to help here. You're asking for help. I'm here to help. Sorry, you're too young to do that, you know, or, or whatever those spaces were. Um, and, and there were a lot of other things. You know, there were a lot of places where I felt like I needed people to rally in seasons of struggle for me where it was crickets and it was silent because it was awkward and nobody knew what to say and nobody knew what to do. Um, and so there were just a lot of spaces of hurt and trauma in my own religious experience. Um, but nonetheless, I had two choices, right? Either let that push me away from the church or how do I use that experience to challenge the church to do better and to be better? Um, you know, I think one of my favorite quotes by Maya Angelou is, you know, do better until you know better. And then once you know better, you do better. And that's really kind of what has challenged me to keep going and like look at pursuing this work in in my doctoral work, which is on religious trauma. You know, religious trauma is not something that's formally diagnosed in the DSM. I think it will be um, in the future. Um, but we're definitely seeing kind of this conversation get started with people. Um, you know, it kind of began with people who were coming out of really oppressive, you know, cult-like situations or really fundamental um, situations. But it's not just those spaces. You know, we see people who have a lot of religious trauma who come out of highly evangelical spaces and other spaces as well, because I don't think we always realize that sometimes when we 
take scripture out of context or we twist its usage or, um, you know, when we justify behavior, we add words to the gospel with these kind of like Christian catchphrases. And, you know, we, we do all of these things that they can be incredibly harmful to individuals. You know, we have large pockets of faith communities all around this country, um, but there's a high concentration in this area that doesn't know how to deal with domestic violence. And so when a woman comes forward and says, I'm being abused at home by my husband, the woman is looked at as the one who's being sinful because she's not being submissive. And so the pastoral counsel at that point is to go home or to pray for your husband or, you know, to continue to submit to those spaces. And that's an incredibly traumatic use of religion. And so I think it's really important that for faith leaders to understand there is not only a divine calling into that space, but there's a holy privilege to make sure that we are caring for people and not inflicting trauma in the name of Jesus in a way that I don't think brings any form of honor or glory to what he, what, what we've been called to do in that space through mm-hmm. ministry. Mm-hmm. So what's your hope when you're finished with your studies of what you could create from this knowledge? Yeah, yeah great question. So um, I think, you know, big dream for me is down the road creating a Faith and Trauma Institute Um, that also has some advocacy training components to it so that we can train faith leaders and faith communities on, you know, what is religious trauma? How do we minimize inflicting it? How do we minister to it when people have, you know, experienced it? How do we create trauma-informed outreaches, like a lot of the different things that we're doing at the Connecting Grounds? How do we learn how to be holistically community-engaged You know, how do we not just say, well, that's not our calling, you know, but how do we incorporate maybe really hard work that's not easy work in your community and whatever that need looks like, because every city is different. You know, I think one of the real struggles over the last decade or so has been church planting has become really diplomatic. And so it's like we did this in this city and it worked really well. So just take our entire model and do it here. But it doesn't leave a lot of room to personalize things and to respond to the needs of the neighborhood that you're in or the city that you're in. And so, you know, what does that look like to train the church to be a more socially responsive space in Hmm. in a lot of our cities? So the work that that you do on a daily basis, you're dealing with a lot of people who are in crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, This doctorate work is very heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, this sounds taxing for your physical, emotional, spiritual self. Like, how do you create boundaries and what has that looked like for you in your work? Have you found success in that? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting better at it. Um, I would say the first couple of years, um, well, the first year, you know, was a challenge. Um, our second and third year was COVID. <laughs> and so there were no boundaries and that, that was rough. Um, that was really, really hard. Um, especially those, you know, first three months or so where everything else in our community really had shut down. And so, you know, everybody was coming to us for food, for medical care. You know, we were trying to make sure we had porta potties and, um, that was, that was a really heavy lift and, um, definitely did not do a good job of self-caring in that season. Um, physically I felt the effects of that, um, and ended up really, really sick. Um, so I lead with, um, an autoimmune disease that's not fun and I don't talk about it a lot, um, but it does add complication to things. And so, you know, most days when I get up, I have extra, extra barriers and extra battles that I have to fight inside myself to do things. Um, and that has definitely forced me 
to have to pay attention to some things and to carve out some margin a little bit better. Um, so, you know, there's usually at least one day a week that I need to make sure that I'm doing things that are a little bit more like office. Here's, you know, I'm going to sit and just knock out all of these things. Um, and just kind of give my body a chance to recharge its batteries. Um, I've gotten better at saying no, I've gotten an amazing team, unbelievably amazing team. Um, and so, you know, I have, wonderful people that I can trust and delegate things to. And, um, I've gotten much better at saying, you know, I don't have to do this. I've got, you know, this person who can do this or this person that can do this. We've also built up a really beautiful, amazing volunteer pool. Um, and so a lot of times I can say, is anybody available? And almost always we're able to find somebody. And so, um, yeah, I've definitely learned to trust people more. I've learned to to let more people help do the lifting because I can't lift all the time. Um, and as a one Enneagram person, that's sometimes a hard truth to wrestle <laughs> with and to remember, um, but it's been helpful. Yeah. Life is kind of this like holding hands of both joy and sadness at the same mm-hmm. time. And so you experience a lot of grief and sadness mm-hmm. in the work that you do, but like where where do you find joy in your life? I mean, honestly, there's oftentimes joy and sadness that coexist at the same time. And that's the truth for a lot of us, too. Like you just said, typically, you know, we we kind of exist in this liminal space where there's there's pieces in both. And so um, I think in the places where I grieve, I also challenge myself to try to find something to celebrate and try to find something that we can learn or grow or be challenged by in those spaces. Um, so that's something that I think gives me some balance. Um, but I also find joy in, you know, just some of the the people that I have in my world. Um, I've got some pretty amazing kids that I've had the privilege to raise. So um, my husband and I have four that are, you know, mostly adults now, you know, young adults. And so that's a fun season to be in. Um, and so getting to hang out with them or talk to them and just hear about their days and, and what's going on or talk about Chiefs football or, you know, whatever's going on, Harry Potter and all the things. Um, that's, that's always something that brings me a lot of joy to just see them kind of finding their own way in the world, finding their places of advocacy, their voices, their mm-hmm. passions. Thank you so much, Christy. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. This was fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of No Ceiling at sbj.net forward slash no ceiling or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is produced by AdSmith Studio with special thanks to Joe Stearns. Photography and design by SBJ's Heather Mosley and Rebecca Green. American National is the show's presenting sponsor. I'm Christine Temple, and this is No Ceiling. No Ceiling.